What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to the Core Consult RX podcast. We are tackling yet another women's health uh, subject. I gotta today. say, I love it when you send me a message that we're gonna do women's health. I feel very confident. Do you? I feel like I know exactly what I'm talking about. Do, well, you are a specialist. No, I'm being very, very facetious. But uh, no, this is a topic that I actually don't think that we've covered. Usually, we're repeating stuff and no, this redoing, is this is brand new for but us. I don't think we've done this. We're doing endometriosis today. We're gonna kind of go through uh, a brief overview. We are by no means gonna go super in depth, just because brief overview is where our knowledge set kind of uh, lies. So, um, also full disclosure, we are trying a new audio recording system today, and we are. Uh, AJ is monitoring it and all that stuff. However, if the audio sounds weird, because we don't really know yet what it's going to sound like. So if uh, when we go to publish this uh, episode, if it sounds ridiculous. And we never don't publish an episode. Right. So regardless of how poor it sounds, we have you guys it. are going to hear it. Yeah. So. so if it sounds like garbage, you're like, what did they do? But this, we'll it, fix it next time. this could just make our podcast sound so much better. You, you never know. Maybe. We'll find out. Well, yeah. Just stay tuned. Yeah. Or you're actually tuned in, so yeah. never mind. You guys know. You guys we don't know. know. We don't know yet. If you're having to crank up the car twice as loud as normal, I hope not. That might be the problem. Yeah. So, well, we'll find out. Yes. <laughs> um, AJ, doing okay back there, buddy? Good to go. We're going to get AJ a camera, too, so we can face him. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the next step. Well, but see, he controls the camera, so... You know, it's just going to be on him the whole time. Never. Ne- <laughs> Never going to be on me. I'm going to have an override switch, <laughs> put it right back on AJ. All right. So endometriosis, um, it is a fairly common um, gynecological condition. Um, it does typically affect women during their reproductive years. Um, by definition, it's basically the growth of the endometrial tissue outside of the uterus. Um, it usually, diagnosis happens during um, you know the 30s, maybe 40s, um, but adolescents um, can also uh, get diagnosed with endometriosis as well. Um, some of the kind of hallmark symptoms, if you will, um, chronic pelvic pain, um, dysmenorrhea, uh, infertility can also kind of be a result of endometriosis. Um, but there are these patient population, you know, that have, they either find it kind of um, by accident, um, but, you know, or whatever the case may be, but they basically have, uh, you know, no symptoms um, that we would think of when we're thinking of endometriosis. So asymptomatic patients are out there, but typically the, the, the pain is really what drives, um, you know, usually someone to get uh, a workup because it's, it can be very extreme. Um, and it, it does tend to be one of the reasons why um, women end up having to get a hysterectomy um, or you know, even being hospitalized because of the pain. Um, so it definitely can affect quality of life in a pretty big way. Yeah. Um, as far as who you're thinking about patients um, who are at risk for this, so it has a pretty strong genetic predisposition um, for patients to develop endometriosis. So if a patient has or a woman has a first-degree relative with endometriosis, they have a 7 to 10-fold increased risk uh, for having it themselves. So pretty strong um, family relation there. As far as other risk factors, uh, patients who start menses relatively young, so 11 years old or younger, are at increased risk. Um, if they have menstrual cycles that last less than 27 days, and if they have heavy or prolonged menses, those can increase your risk as well. Uh, it's also been shown that regular exercise can lower risks. So regular exercise for more than four hours per week has been associated with a lower risk. Um, but yeah, those are some things to look out for when you're kind of uh, working up your differential. 
So much like a lot of, uh, you know, sort of um, conditions that deal with, you know, the menstrual cycle in, in general, um, estrogen and, and progesterone are kind of uh, very important aspects of it. So estrogen tends to have more pro-inflammatory effects uh, on endometrial cells specifically, um, and progestins tend to inhibit the inflammatory pathways and induce apoptosis in endometriotic cells. So endometriotic tissue does have um, an increased expression of, of two separate um, enzyme. So increased expression of, I'm sorry, increased of one, decrease of the other. I said that wrong. Um, increased expression of aromatase enzyme, um, and then decreased expression of 17-beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 2, uh, which basically results in an increased concentration of estradiol. Um, the estrogen then, you know, it can stimulate the release of these inflammatory cytokines um, and, you know, activate that COX-2 pathway. And endometriotic lesions um, tend to have a decreased progesterone uh, receptor expression um, and an absence of progesterone receptor B, um, which basically ends up leading to incomplete um, transition of endometrium from the luteal phase to the um, secretory phase of the menstrual cycle. And, um, you know, can start causing pain and inflammation and, and inf uh, fertility as well can yep. also be directly kind of attributed to the inflammation as well as the anatomic abnormalities, um, such as like ovarian cysts. Um, and, you know, these can lead to blockage of the fallopian tubes, which basically is hindering the oocyte from, you know, having you know, undergoing embryo development um, the inflammatory cytokines can damage sperm dna um, as well as cell membranes in general um, and then you know hormonal dysregulation also obviously can lead to irregular irregularities of the menstrual cycle and um, altered uh, oocyte embryo quality in general so um, infertility is definitely something that uh, you know we have to you know Keep in mind, and and also too can be one reason uh, why we discover endometriosis in a patient who is you know asymptomatic as well. I don't know that I've ever really said oocyte out loud. That's yeah, how, that's how you say it. As far as I know, oocyte. Just o -O give the double O. Oocyte. Yeah, I, uh, I I put it in. This, I think maybe. It might have been this past year, maybe the year before, but I actually put it into Google. So I had an argument with somebody about that, and mm -hmm. I would put it into Google uh, Pronounce. Yeah. And it was like, uh-oh. I was like, uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Yeah, it looks like I'm right. <laughs> uh-oh. Psych. Yeah. Um, I think we'd all know what we're talking about, though, if we said either way. Yes. So live your dream, however you want to pronounce it, everyone listening. There you go. Um, so we mentioned some symptoms that you can see from endometriosis, the dysmenorrhea, Mike talked about the infertility, pain. Um, there's some other things uh, related to pain. You can have dyspareunia, so that's a deep pain during or after sexual intercourse. Um, Period-related or cyclical gastrointestinal symptoms like painful bowel movements can happen. Um, Menorrhagia, uh, ovulation pain, and then more general things like chronic fatigue and other symptoms related to that can happen as well, and those would be physical manifestations that people might see. Chronic pelvic pain can vary in severity. Um, it can also be cyclic. It can be acyclic, so pretty much either way. Um, some patients, like Mike said, might be asymptomatic. If you're doing a physical exam, things you might see, pelvic tenderness, enlarged ovaries, pelvic masses or nodules, um, uterosacral ligaments, uh, fixed or retroverted uterus, um, some, some things that would be um, in the note or that you might see on a physical exam. So as, as far as like the definitive diagnosis of endometriosis, technically we would need to do, you know, a laparoscopic um, procedure to kind of assess for those endometriotic lesions. Uh, so 
that is usually kind of saved for after some empiric therapy options are, are utilized, so like some hormone therapy and whatnot. But eventually, the laparoscopic um, procedure is usually done to kind of assess and, and make sure see if there's those those lesions are present. Um, and also, it's recommended that during the procedure that any visible lesions um, are removed if possible. Um, you know, some patients who, if they do not require or do not, um, desire rather require, they do not desire future um, pregnancy, then there is a, uh, there is the option of getting a hysterectomy or ophorectomy. Um, and you know, the problem is, is that surgery does not even guarantee like full relief of symptoms. Um, there was also kind of a debate where, um, you know, whether or not we should um, continue uh, hormonal therapy um, directly before or after um, the procedure. Um, so short-term adjunctive hormonal treatment does not improve surgical outcomes. Um, however, a lot of these patients are going to tend to be on um, you know, the hormonal therapy up until that point anyway, but if they haven't been taking hormonal therapy, it's, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to start them before the procedure. You don't get any added benefit or uh, better outcomes. Hormonal treatment um, for secondary prevention, um, you know, is, and that can be oral hormonal contraceptives or it could be like a progesterone-releasing IUD. Um, and doing that for 18 to 24 months has been shown to prevent the reoccurrence of some of those lesions. So that is something to consider. But again, you know, we're going to probably go to some of our more first-line, more mild agents to try to treat the what we think is endometriosis mm-hmm. pain before um, necessarily going through the laparoscopic you know, procedure to truly diagnose it right and um and we mentioned the physical exam and stuff but it can be difficult anytime you hear somebody having abdominal or pelvic pain it, it can be pretty non-specific and it can be a variety of things so teasing it out can be difficult um so first line uh kind of more mild treatments like mike said NSAIDs for the pain um oral um hormonal contraceptives combined hormonal contraceptives are going to be a mainstay early therapy uh norethindrone so you'll see the brands orthomicronor nora b um provera the oral medroxyprogesterone um also the injectable uh medroxyprogesterone the depo provera um also um options that are well tolerated and and proven safe for long-term use because they're frequently used for um, contraception and uh, endometriosis symptoms will typically return shortly after treatment is discontinued, which can you know, not necessarily be diagnostic, but something else that points you towards that you are correct about what the issue probably is. Um, there isn't really any studies directly comparing these, um, so it's kind of like uh, treatment between preference of the patient and um, you know, side effect profile and that sort of thing. So as, as far as dosing um, schedules for especially the uh, combined or, or uh, hormonal contraceptive, you know, we've typically kind of dosed them cyclically. So three weeks of active hormone followed by one week of placebo to allow for, um, you know, patient to have a period. Um, in 2003, there was a prospective trial that basically demonstrated that continuous dosing may be more efficacious than cyclic dosing. So individuals with recurrent, um, especially post-operative dysmenorrhea, were switched from cyclic to continuous um, dosing and reported significant reductions in pain. Uh, Other studies have shown similar results as well. And so the guidelines do specifically recommend continuous dosing. If you're treating a patient for endometriosis, um, endometriotic pain, then um, continuous dosing would be ideal. Um, And then due to the you know, sort of proposed um, estrogen dependency of those endometriotic lesions, um, consider initiating patients on a a combined uh, hormonal contraceptive at the lowest effective estrogen dose um, to sort of limit that possibility of worsening 
the estradiol, you know, basically encouraging those lesions to, to grow. Yep. So kind of summing up a little bit of that, um, empirical treatment for the pain, if you don't have a specific diagnosis, will probably be done with the oral contraceptives or the progestins. Um, the preoperative and the postoperative hormonal treatment should not be initiated um, with the primary goal to improve surgery outcomes. Um, uh, the operative laparoscopy is the preferred treatment option for women with infertility from endometriosis who want to become pregnant. Um, if they do not um, or they fail the more conservative options, the hysterectomy, oophorectomy, oophorectomy <laughs> may be considered um, in these women. So what happens if those don't work? Well, That's just, the real question. I think we just give up. I don't know, Cole. We don't give up. Never give we up. We keep digging. Well, maybe at some point, but <laughs> we keep digging deeper. So to get into more of our uh, specific, uh, more specialized meds, if you will, we have first up uh, is our gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist. And you'll see uh, here in a little bit, I think Cole will talk about uh, the antagonist as well, which can get a little confusing because why are we using agonist and antagonist together? But um, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, we have a few different options. There's there's lu, uh, luprolide, there is um, nephrolin, um, which is an intranasal formulation. Um, there's a couple others like um, gosrolin and things like that. That are uh, that one's sub Q. But basically, the the mechanism here is that you are um, binding these agents to the gonadotropin releasing hormone receptor, which stimulates the pituitary to produce the follicle stimulating hormone as well as luteinizing hormone. Um, and then basically over time with continued treatment, the pituitary decreases this secretion of follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, basically because you're trying to down, um, you know, you're because of the down regulation of those uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone receptors and um, the pituitary desensitization, you know, secretion. And so the, the fall of follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone levels basically um, suppress the ovarian follicular growth and ovulation. And, um, you know, it kind of makes sense mechanistically, but the issue is initially when you have a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, they sort of create this gonadotropic flare, if you will, um, that happens prior to the eventual long-term receptor downregulation. So the initial onset of that gonadotropic flare can be fairly painful um, and in, in some cases be worse pain off than the person had kind of at baseline. And, you know, that was one of the big concerns with this type of therapy initially. Um, and so what they ended up having to kind of do, and we'll talk about this in a second, is they, they use hormonal contraceptives um, to sort of uh, mitigate those risks. Um, but that's going to be an important aspect of that. And I'll let Cole talk about that part. But these agents just kind of in and of themselves have been approved um, by the FDA uh depending on which agent it is, but uh, around for a 12-month course of treatment. Um, there are, you know, patients who, if they respond well to therapy during that 12 months, kind of an off-label use, they will continue their use longer than that because um, the problem is that the pain will typically quickly, you know, reoccur once the, the medication is stopped. Um, some of the common adverse effects that can happen from these gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, um, things like loss of libido, um, it can induce some some hot flashes or uh, vaginal dryness, um, you know, some insomnia, and then with you know more long-term use, which they would define that as greater than six months. Um, one of the big concerns we have to worry about is the bone mineral density loss uh, potentially, which think of it as basically adverse effects causing almost like menopausal type symptoms. So some of our um, 
you know, the classic symptoms that we would think about um, is what we can kind of induce with with this treatment, especially when we use it for months and months or maybe even years. Right. And so if you think about it that way, it's like a menopausal type side effects, then, you know, what would be potential treatment for some of those side effects? It would be hormonal contraceptives. So they have what they term uh, in the, what is, you know, in the women's health field. In the literature. The literature. Um, add back therapy. So they, they call it that, I guess, because frequently these patients will be on the hormonal contraceptives. And then I guess when they were looking into the gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, they would stop those, add on the um, gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, and then they'd have these side effects. So they'd add back the hormonal contraceptives to mitigate those side effects. But maybe ideally they never came off of them. They just added on the gonadotropin releasing hormone agent and then were able to mitigate the side effects that way. I'm not entirely sure if that's uh, completely appropriate, but they call it the add back therapy probably for that reason. So, what does it do? Um, it consists of progestin or the combination progestin estrogens. And the point is to minimize that bone mineral density loss and the other adverse side effects. And hopefully, I believe, mitigate the flare, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there's a few studies that have recently shown that estrogen-progestin combinations are more effective than the progestin monotherapy at protecting uh, against the bone mineral density loss. Um, so I think of uh, estrogen-progestin combinations being more effective in, um, in uh, reduce for contraceptive, and so I'll, now I'm going to think of them as being better for bone mineral density loss. So think about this, though. It's the combination, but they're different doses than we typically see for a combined hormonal contraceptive. Right. So that's the other key takeaway, too, is we, and that's partly why they refer to it as add back, because originally we would stop. You know, we, we may do the hormonal, like the original combined hormonal contraceptives initially for the, to kind of mitigate that initial flare, but then they would stop those and kind of let the therapy go on as monotherapy. They added back some of those hormones, but in different concentrations okay. than we would be if we were doing hormonal contraceptives. So that makes more sense. So yeah. it's different doses than they were initially on yeah. even early in their endometriosis treatment. Yeah. I understand. And, and it's because that when you add higher levels of estrogen, you're just then you're basically negating some of those anti-estrogenic effects that are supposed to be there to alleviate the endometriosis pain to begin with. So that's why if you look at like what we actually use for add back therapy options, like Cole said, we can either use a progesterone only, which could be like norethindrone five milligrams, or we could use something like um, Premarin plus norethindrone. So Premarin being like the conjugated equine estrogens, the 0.625 um, milligram um estrogens but it's different than the ethanol estradiol even if the the dose is different like the way it's actually leads to the systemic concentrations um it can be a much more pronounced effect with the combined hormonal contraceptives um even though the milligrams to micrograms and all that doesn't add up um i did f- i found a paper one time that uh, i can try to find i need to find again in case anybody's interested but um that basically walked through the like basically the doses of in formulations of the different estrogen products whether it's the menopausal hormonal therapy or um, hormonal contraceptive and showed like the serum concentrations as a result and it was very confusing to see it but it made more sense this stuff made more sense when you can see how that affects gotcha um there's also the, like the transdermal estradiol like the vivel dot um that you can do the twice weekly transdermal patch um that you can add the medroxyprogesterone acetate the provera um to that as well um, there's also the oral estradiol that you could do plus norethindrone um, but you get the idea basically those are some of the you're using more like hormonal um like menopausal therapy than you are the 
contraceptive therapy. So just to kind of drive that point home. Um, but it is basically recommended to start ADBAC therapy um, on the immediate initiation of the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist. So that also helps, like Cole was saying, to mitigate that flare. So we don't ever, we don't have to, we used to just do like a three-week course of hormonal contraceptive to mitigate the flare. Now this mitigates the flare and long-term prevents that bone mineral density loss. Yep. So that's the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. So that brings us to the um, next confusing um, <laughs> uh, class, which is the gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists being used for the same thing. You know, um, so it, the one that we'll talk about is Oralissa. I've seen this one a lot. I never knew what the generic was. Elagolix? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, personally, I've definitely seen this more often, and I think the reason is probably that the reason these can be used also, uh, uh, like the agonists, is the agonists end up downregulating those receptors over time after the flood of the FSH and LH. The antagonists kind of skip that flood portion and skip that downregulation portion and just block them, competitively inhibit them entirely. So they competitively inhibit the um, gonadotropin-releasing hormone receptors in the pituitary to rapidly decrease circulating estradiol and gonadotropins. Um, so to me, it kind of skips a step. It's a little more efficient, and it's a little bit newer. So that's that's mm-hmm. that's why this one would be, be used more often and why they had the, the uh, agonists maybe in the first place. It has similar efficacy but better tolerability versus the agonists because you don't have that flare, so you're not going to see... Um, the side effects that are frequently associated with the agonists. Um, it effectively downregulates the same hormones as the agonists. There's a quicker onset. Um, you don't get the painful flare, like I said. Um, the problem is if they didn't respond to the agonists, they're probably not going to respond to the antagonists either because um, they're ultimately doing the same thing um, down the line. That doesn't mean you can't have adverse effects. There are still a variety of adverse effects associated with them. Um, headache, nausea, anxiety, still hot flashes, um, some breakthrough bleeding and spotting. You can have hypoestrogenic adverse effects, just like with the agonists long-term, you just kind of skip the flare uh, portion of the adverse effects. So still the hot flashes, you might have increased lipid levels, and still the concern for bone mineral density loss. Um, the side effects were milder versus the agonists. Um, the ADBAC therapy was not used in clinical trials, um, so it's not really clear whether the ADBAC therapy would be appropriate to minimize these adverse effects. Seems like it would make sense, though, mm-hmm. but it's 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 not in the studies. Um, it does not fully suppress ovulation, and the effect of the um, antagonists on pregnancy is not known at, th- at this time. Um, so it's recommended to use non-hormonal contraceptives, um, so backup contraception, to avoid pregnancy while they're they're taking this until we, until we know more. So that would what be pregnancy category D if we had to toss one in there, but we're not going to do that because we can't do that anymore. <clears throat> Might be actually C. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think D. We'll no C. I think that'd be C. We're going to settle on C? I'm settling. Done. Set. AJ, market C. Done. <laughs> All right. So uh, the last but not least, we're going to talk about um, denazole, which is basically a, an androgen um, compound that it serves as very kind of, I would say almost third line, um, now just because of the, the side effect profile and, you know, it's it, a lot of patients have a hard time tolerating it, but it's basically working to inhibit the endometrial tissue growth. Um, it also helps to induce endometrial uh, atrophy. Um, it causes amenorrhea over time, um, because it causes a hypoestrogenic, hypoprogesterone um, environment. And, um, you know, it, it can help with, with the endometriotic pain 
pain. Um, however, the adverse effect profile is pretty substantial. So when we think of androgens, you know, we're thinking of like basically unwanted hair growth. We're thinking of increased sebum production, which is then going to lead to, you know, acne, um, you know, things like um, weight gain or, or bloating, um, fluid retention in general can happen. So if a patient has any kind of underlying condition that, you know, edema could potentially make worse, whether it's vascular or cardiac or whatever, um, that can lead to issues. Um, it can also uh, increase lipid levels. And so, you know, women who have hyperlipidemia um, or liver disease can also be a factor of either one of those should not be initiated on this medication. And um, it is a teratogen as well. So um, barrier contraception actually needs to be used in conjunction with this to uh, avoid pregnancy, you know, at all costs. Um, it was kind of formally back in the day, considered like the gold standard for endometriotic treatment. But um, it's basically, you know, limited now because of its androgenic effects. And we have better options, you know, that while much more uh, expensive, they give a much better quality of life. So this has definitely gotten pushed down um, the the favorability chart here. Um, but it is still out there. It's an option. So it's one thing we got to at least keep in mind. Yep. Um, so this is not an uncommon um, disease state for younger patients to have. So thinking about adolescence with, um, with endometriosis uh, presenting with secondary dysmenorrhea, um, thinking about the Depo-Provera shot and the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, they should be used with caution due to the bone mineral density loss concerns. Um, so there are some treatments of choice. Um, dysmenorrhea in adolescence is typically treated empirically. Uh, so the first line options would be NSAIDs and the combined hormonal contraceptives like we referenced uh, earlier, kind of those milder treatment options. Um, try them for at least three months and you can reassess the pain relief. If it persists after three months, the combined hormonal contraceptives may be switched from cyclic to continuous dosing, like Mike had um, referenced earlier, instigating amenorrhea and hopefully having slightly better outcomes. Um, if failure, uh, if, if therapy fails, then um, the, the first line options typically include um, maybe the laparoscopic diagnostic um, procedure um, or treatment surgery because failure correlates highly um, to a diagnosis of uh, endometriosis. So this is this is patients with secondary dysmenorrhea. Um, at higher risk for um, endometriosis. In adolescent patients. In adolescent too. patients, yeah. yes. So as far as, you know, how we monitor outcomes with this, it's really going to be based on the patient's subjective relief of their symptoms. Um, so that we have things, for example, like the endometriosis treatment satisfaction questionnaire, um, which is going to re uh, measure patient-reported pain before um, – and or during periods, um, pain during and or after sex, um, endometriosis pain in general, uh, uh, occurrence of bleeding or spotting, uh, tolerability, overall satisfaction, and it bases, basically uses the seven-point Likert scale. Uh, and then it's a good way of kind of getting a baseline and then kind of measuring and quantifying, if you will, the change uh, with the medication and, and therapy options that were selected. Uh, and there's others as well. There's another validated outcome test called the uh, Medical Outcomes Study Questionnaire, short form 36 Health Survey, whoever named that needs to go away. Um, it's abbreviated as SF36. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty just, good abbreviation for yeah, the that's awful a, name. It's a much better one. I feel like that's like a it radioactive. It makes sense why it has, yes. Radioactive compound or something. Yeah, SF36. Like sulfur, sulfur fluoride. 36 radioactive don't touch it, it could also be like a football player for the 49ers i said uh, maybe you know San I, like, Francisco I, like, 36. I like mine better but whatever okay. no, i'm just kidding <laughs> you win all right fine yes aj you heard it um all right so 
I did, uh, if you guys are interested in seeing a copy of this, you can uh, get one off, off of uh, the Instagram page for the for the podcast. But I made uh, basically my version of a treatment algorithm, if you will. Um, hopefully this is, is helpful. Help, I need I need flow charts for stuff. For, yeah, to get my To get my simple brain to kind of like map these types of things out, I need flow charts. But um, so I kind of made this. It's a very simplistic form, but hopefully, you know, it can help a little bit. Um, but basically, yeah, it's considering an adult with endometriotic uh, suspected or pain due to suspected endometriosis, um, we would do empiric therapy typically to start, whether it's NSAIDs, um, oral combo hormonal contraceptive, oral progesterone, um, dipoprovera, um, whatever the patient's, you know, comorbidities or, you know, wants and needs are, we can kind of pick and choose from there. Um, or maybe start with one and go to another and, and whatnot. Once we've kind of gone through empiric therapy, it's not responding. The patient's still having pain. Maybe the pain's getting worse. Um, then at that point, we probably need to go ahead and do a laparoscopic diagnosis as well as that surgical ablation of those lesions. And, um, you know, anything that's visible, we kind of remove those so we can kind of get the process started. And then at that point, we're selecting therapy, um, whether it's the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, uh, just make sure you add – do or in addition to that, add add back therapy. I don't know how to say that. Add add back therapy. That sounds dumb. Plus add back therapy. Nice. So if you're going to use the agonist, um, make sure the patient is also on the add back therapy. Or you can do the gonadotropin releasing hormone antagonist, um, which you don't necessarily need the add back therapy for in that case. Or uh, denazole if you need like a very cheap alternative and the patient's willing to use the barrier contraception and you know deal with the, the unwanted side effects and all that good stuff. Um, and then from there, if those aren't working, and remember, if the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist or antagonist does not work, then the opposite probably will not work either. And you may be forced to kind of go the danazole route. Um, or uh, at that point, you have to consider potential surgery. Um, and so if you know the patient does desire to have um, or become pregnant in the future or is unsure, then you know we would probably want to repeat, just continue repeating the treatment for another six to twelve months, kind of reassessing, seeing if there's any other things we can do to um, alleviate the the symptoms. Um, or if the patient does not um, desire a pregnancy, then um, a hysterectomy or ophorectomy can be warranted at that point, and hopefully that uh, will alleviate the pain and, and symptoms they're having. But even that's not guaranteed, unfortunately. But very simple algorithm. Uh, I just kind of made it uh, to keep it straight in my own head. So, uh, like I said, if you guys want to see a copy of it or want a copy of it, go onto the Instagram page. You can just screenshot it. Um, let me know what you think. Or if you think it's terrible, let us know too, so I can fix it. That'd be appreciated. <laughs> so, that was um, good. Thanks, man. I let uh, our women's health uh, nurse practitioner, Miss Patty. She, I looked at it and said, "Is this?" makes some kind of sense and she goes yeah looks good like, all right good enough for me if miss patty says it's good it's good for me so um but yeah man that's that's all we kind of got so like i said it's gonna be a brief overview yeah i think we nailed it i think the main thing you know Cole, that, you always think we nail it well i'm so positive i am and I'm, I'm an optimist that's good but it, it depends well anyways um yeah you know one probably very difficult thing about this disease state that we didn't touch on much is the differential and kind of working through whether it is mm-hmm. endometriosis or not. But we, you know, touch on it a little bit about what to do if it's suspected, but and that's we, difficult and we did, from a practitioner's standpoint. Yeah. And we did go back through, uh, when we were talking about some of the menstrual related disorders and whatnot, we talked about, you know, getting different yeah. labs and stuff. So if you are interested, make sure you go back and listen to that. Mm-hmm. I know we, we have, have one on dysmenorrhea. Yeah, yeah. And we did amenorrhea. We did oh, heavy both, menstrual yeah. bleeding. We, do, we basically, we have a whole playlist of women's health topics. We do. So 
I can't well, believe it. I was just a bunch of dudes saying how good. I know. Mark if had. you, I bet you, if you stacked all those up together and listened to them, you'd be like, "This is terrible." Yeah. Well, that's what happens. You <laughs> I'm put kidding. I'm sure. A bunch of dudes it. in a room to try to talk about this, but um, we appreciate you bearing with us anyway. And uh, like I said, we tried. So I hope that was helpful. Um, if you have any questions, comments, we'd also love to hear them. Um, you know, send us an email. The emails will be in the show notes. So make sure you send that our way. If we have not responded to you in the past, I promise it's not on purpose. Um, but uh, not to sound like we're actually important by any means, but we do get a lot of emails. Um, and so we're, we're trying to respond back to them. Some pe- some of the emails are literally just people wanting us to answer questions for them so they don't have to look it up, which <laughs> shame on you. How dare you? Um, and I always end up doing it anyway because yeah. <laughs> I feel bad. But um, no, if, if please don't take that personally. I promise we will try our best to get back to you. Um, but uh, if you want to reach us on the social media platforms, that's usually a little bit quicker a lot of times. Um, so Instagram, Facebook, any of those. And then you know you can also send us a text directly if you want. The phone number is 415-943-6116. Um, and it'll get like an automatic response and then um, – you can, if you don't want to answer that, you don't have to, but I'll get back to you as quick as I can on there too. Um, also, if you like more lecture style, um, like if you want to see slide sets on endometriosis, for example, make sure you check out Patreon. Um, it's $3 a month or like $30 and some change to register for the year. You get access to like a hundred different pharmacotherapy lectures and to start trying to have two different lectures uploaded a week and, um, with the slide sets and all that good stuff. So, um, check that out if you want to, you know, we use the money to, to support, uh, more equipment and better quality of the show. Um, hopefully this audio isn't terrible, so we don't, I don't eat my words on that, but um we're trying but uh yeah so it definitely helps us out so we can keep on bringing you guys content and uh yeah we just appreciate the support and we'll see you guys in the next time have a good one